This is our Thursday probateweekly.com Zoom call. We get together every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern time, and talk about all things probate uh, for realtors, investors, wholesalers, bird doggers, uh, investors, um, real estate agents, uh, attorneys. We get uh, families, pro pers looking to do their own probates, and vendors. We get together and try to help each other by increasing our income and make more money. Sometimes we have just a topic that we talk about and share, but I'd like to get guests on who are practitioners who can help tell us kind of the insights, both as service for our clients and give us insights into our business. If you follow, now some people are new to probate, don't understand how important estate planning is to the probate real estate business. Uh, in some regards, probate is, uh, estate planning is a way to avoid probate, but as a real estate practitioner, it's a way I can generate leads and business, and we'll talk about that. So today I have on, as a special guest, an attorney who is a specializes in estate planning or the avoiding of the probate problems. You may, if you watch regularly, one of our favorite guests was one of her legal partners, who's the probate side. So if you see Shadi, something went wrong. It means you didn't meet Valerie. But today I'm really excited to introduce Valerie Passion. Valerie, thank you so much for being on a call today. You're welcome, Bill. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to be here. And so Valerie, you're in Orange County. And your attorney, and how long have you been practicing law, approximately? So I have been practicing law since 2010. So okay. I was about 10 years old, and okay. so um, say. no, I've been, I guess the law. <laughs> I've been practicing law for uh, quite a bit now. Um, I okay. actually started off uh, in family law, but you know my calling really is in estate planning. So Got that's it. kind of where I I am. So give us a little background on you. Where, where'd you grow up? And then how'd you get into law school? What, what was it that drove you to get into law school and get your uh, bar card? So I grew up in Orange County, here in Orange County. Oh, I did not really want to venture too far away. So I uh, uh, went to UCLA School of Law for law school. Uh-oh, which, uh, hold on, hold on one second. <laughs> I missed that in your bio. Really? Oh, yeah. I missed that. Yeah. Okay, well... Despite that, go ahead. I'm sure you learned something along the way. Go ahead. You must be a, a USC person, huh? One's a Trojan. Who, who <laughs> one went to, one yeah, merely went to UCLA, I, one is a Trojan. But go ahead. So I, I didn't venture too far away, but then I, I came back to Orange County. You know, I'm uh, practicing at the Protection and Elder Law Center here in Irvine, um, living here with uh, my husband, who is also my high school sweetheart, and we have oh. four children, all under 12. How do you and Shadi do it? Like, every time I talk to you guys, I feel so incompetent that my wife handled, we have one child, and she handled all that. I couldn't even deal with it. You have four kids. How do you deal with that? You know, um, you know what they say, it does take a village, and we do have a village. We're very blessed to have amazing grandparents and aunts and uncles who are readily available to babysit. So we're, we're wow. so blessed. <laughs> wow. And these days I am the grandparent, my wife and I are the grandparents that babysit for our daughter who lives nearby. So uh, that's a lot of fun, a lot of, I'm sure, joy for your parents to, uh, to enjoy. So uh, you mentioned that you're in um, asset protection and elder law. How'd you get in that particular niche of, of law? Because there's obviously, like real estate, there's a lot of wide variety of choices where to practice in law as well. Wide variety, criminals and drunk drivers and, and divorces and corporations. How'd you end up in asset protection and elder law in particular? Well, um, you know, I, I usually don't get asked this story, but uh, can I be just very transparant? Please. Uh, it, Sounds know, juicy, it was, yes. It was, a, 
it was quite a bit of a journey. I, I had mentioned earlier, I started off in family law. And um, I guess I'm just that type of person where, you know, I carry a lot of my emotions, you know, on my sleeve. And when I'm with someone, I really do feel their emotions. And so as you can expect, family law was a bit hard for me. You know, I, I, I struggled a bit. I would come home sometimes crying. I was starting, you know, a family of my own at that time. I had two babies at home. And so, um, you know, it, it was, it was a little emotionally totally for me. So I actually took a little bit of time off and, you know, spent time, you know, building my family, raising my family. And I uh, worked as uh, at a nonprofit, uh, you know, part-time and I did uh, legal counseling and I mainly did, you know, family law, you know, free pro bono counseling for, you know, the community. And uh, I had a gentleman walk in, uh, he was a homeless man. And he asked me if I could help him with estate planning. Um, now, you know, I had never done estate planning before. So, you know, it wasn't something I was familiar with. However, he seemed pretty desperate. You know, he told me he had not very much, but what he had, he loved very much. And he wanted to give it to certain people that have helped him through his life, um, including some pastors. He wanted to leave some things to the church. And my heart just, you know, just really went out for him. And I said, you know, I don't know anything about estate planning, but I'm going to figure it out. And so I did kind of a deep dive and I just really dove into like learning what to do. And, you know, I understood that, you know, all this man really needed was a simple will. You know, he didn't own any property. Um, his assets weren't over $150,000 um, at that time. You know, he didn't have any children. So he all he really needed was a simple will. So um, you know, I, I prepared the will for him. I, you know, scheduled the witnesses for him. I had everything signed. And after everything was done and I gave him the documents, he cried and he, you know, hugged me and he said, Valerie, you have no idea how much this means to me. Now I feel like if I go, I can go in peace. Thank you. Um, I had never had that reaction before because in family law, no matter how well you do and how hard you fight for someone, someone is always sad. Someone is always not happy. Um, I was in a place where someone came to me and was extremely grateful. So it kind of changed how I saw law. It kind of changed, you know, what I wanted to do with my life. And um, I always say that lawyers, you know, we generally deal with good people at their worst but i get to say now that i deal with good people at their best because you've done everything right you've saved money you've built a family you you know have a 401k you, you know bought property and now you're just trying to extend that to your legacy and um, i get to do that it's it's great nice you know it's funny in talking to you now because i feel like you you and we have you and shawty on the same call and the before and after picture because you're talking to it it's all rainbows and unicorns and you help people ahead of time they plan ahead they get their legacy if they don't see you they have to walk down the hall to shoddy's office and they're paying for an attorney's fees they're litigating and they're killing their family members and all that but it is great that you get to do that when you plan ahead like that and build the practice so yeah, let's back yeah. up so let's back up a little bit tell me about how obviously um you know you can care about people all you want but at some point people have to come to you or get to you how do you get clients what's you know is there is it because you guys are already established in the market or you do particular 
business development or particular relationships, or how do you generate business besides real estate agents who like you guys and refer clients to you and market for you? So we actually have a very strong reputation in the community. Uh, we've been around sure. for uh, almost 20 years now, mm -hmm. and a lot of it is word of mouth. Uh, we're not the typical estate planning law firm where we just churn out documents and here you go, you deal with it. We actually provide lifetime guidance. Right. So our clients, they come to us and they become family to us. Um, you know, we work with them, you know, throughout life changes, you know, whether they're having new children or buying new property, we become their real estate agent real estate agent, <laughs> I wish. No, uh, we become their attorney for life. And so that kind of what separates us. It's one comprehensive flat fee. It includes everything. We don't leave anything out. We do everything for our clients. Right. So unlike some attorneys, you know, they'll do a piece of it. We don't piecemeal it. It's all comprehensive. And I think that's what really attracts clients to us. And we've just sort of uh, built quite a following. You know, when I first uh, called Shadi to come on my call about a year and a half ago the first time, and uh, she texted me like in a panic before the call saying, I'm really sorry, but a client came in, you know, without an appointment. Uh, is it okay for, you know, um, a little late? I said, Shadi, take care of the client. Like, I'm in real estate. I get, you got to take care of the client first. The marketing and the business development is, is fun. I enjoy this. But really, and I could just hear in her voice the passion. I heard that with you. You and I did it uh, 101 previously as well. I hear that, and I think this comes across and differentiates you from other people in that comprehensive approach. Because I see attorneys who meet the client, get the check, fill out the documents. The client didn't fund the trust, didn't follow up with the things they had to get followed up on, and they're really not a lot better off, or in some cases could almost be even worse off. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, the, the number one, you, I'm sure you talk to people all the time that say, I'm, I'm here to see you because blank. What's the thing that causes people? To, to pick up the phone, to get introduced to your firm, to actually get their little bottom in their little chair across from you in your office and be willing to write a check to actually pay for the fees to get it done. What is the motivating factor that gets them to finally do it? The number one motivating factor is they've experienced the probate process themselves. Mm. They, they now realize that they don't want just anyone working on their estate plan. They want someone who is going to give them a plan on steroids. They want to make sure that there is no way that their family is going to go through this process. Um, as you know, here in California, our real estate is just going crazy. Um, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of an example, but you know, say a house, you know, right now is worth uh, market value a million dollars, which is very, very easy. You're looking at about $31,000 minimum in probate fees. That's just the fees. It's $3,000 just to open a case in probate. Um, there's other fees that could possibly involve. And so when people realize just how expensive it is, not to mention it is public, you know, everyone gets to see what's going on in your situation. You've heard of celebrities like Paul Walker and um, Prince, you know, you've heard situations that have happened in their uh, probate cases because it's all public. Um, another thing is it's just very, very time consuming. I mean, California particularly, we're seeing about one to two years of uh, probate court you know, process. That being said, most people who experience it know that if they're gonna do it, they're gonna do it right. 
Uh, we also get a lot of clients coming in that have previously gone to, you know, somewhere else, you know, they maybe have done it themselves and they've run into a problem and their attorney is nowhere to be found. Um, we don't do that. We have every incentive to make sure that our clients are happy because we provide lifetime guidance. So we try to do it right from the very beginning. And if we don't do it right, I mean, let's be real. We're human beings. Sometimes we make mistakes. We get it fixed. That's kind of the difference. Now, those of you watching along here today with us, the goal of this is being interactive. Because of security, we kind of have to limit the jumping in part. But if you have a question in Zoom, there's a raise your hand feature. Feel free to do that or put in the chat box. And if in the chat box, you could put the first word or letter, either question or cue. I know some of you guys like to promote your businesses and it's kind of hard to catch all the questions, but feel free to ask any questions. I want to be interactive and I'll just tell you, the more, the more that you interact and ask questions, the more you learn, the more you help other people. So, you know, I think it was Shadi that said, it was, it was an attorney I worked with, I want to say it was Shadi who said that if you don't have an estate plan, the state of California has one for you. And I add to that, yeah, and it looks a lot like the DMV, but it's only worse. Like, you know, standing in line, getting your paperwork, your paperwork's not right. If you thought the DMV was bad, man, you should have probably court on your own and try to fill out those papers. And yet, to some degree, you bypass the process. So describe kind of like the before and after. If somebody can live their life and they go to probate or then they go back in time and then they go through the state plan, what's the difference look like in terms of the process in a, in a high level? they want to do an estate plan, I sit down with them. We do a very extensive consultation. You know, I understand what their unique issues are, their unique needs, and I provide them an all comprehensive package. Usually that package includes a living trust. That's the foundational document that is needed. Um, secondly, I always include a pour over will. The pour over will is not like just a will. It is actually a document that allows you to assign an executor to transfer anything that is not in the trust into the trust. Now, this is sort of like a safety net. This is not your primary way of avoiding probate, but it's an added safety net that is there. Um, moreover, the will is where you include the guardian designation, which is one of the most litigated issues in um, a right. lot of probate cases. And so right. uh, trust does not have the guardian designation, but a will does. Um, after that, we make sure that we have a financial power of attorney because we don't want to just have these documents in place once we pass. We actually want to have these documents in place when we are still alive, but sometimes life happens and we're not able to do certain things. So we assign someone that we trust, we put that into a financial power of attorney. And then there's the advanced medical directives, which are also very important. And that has to do with healthcare. So that's kind of the comprehensive process that we do when someone wants to sit down and do estate planning with us. Now, on the back end of things, if someone doesn't have a trust and they own any property, if they have over $160,000 in assets, um, if they have children and there's guardianship issues, that all goes to probate court. And that's tens of thousands of dollars. And so um, it's very different how we approach the situations. I obviously <laughs> am biased. And so I think that on my side, it's a lot more joyful and happy. And if you talk to anyone, I think they will agree as well. Yeah, definitely. So, um, and, and the truth is that that a, a great estate plan won't avoid litigation because there's still estate plans that get litigated. Anybody can litigate anything. It's just going to reduce the odds and reduce the friction. I, we recently, my first grandchild, 
and my so, my daughter and son-in-law had to decide, you know, God forbid something happens to them, who's in charge? They're lucky to have four grandparents. But you can imagine four grandparents arguing over decisions on what school and religion and this and that. Um, and so we said to him, I said, I don't care who does it. You need to create those documents ahead of time so you decide what happens with your son. I'm, I trust your decision, but don't leave it to us to work out then because there's emotions involved, things like that. Okay, a couple questions I see. First question I had was from Frank. If a person has a will and designates who gets the million-dollar home upon their death, is there still a big tax obligation? Now, I'll give the disclaimer that Valerie's not an uh, accountant. Uh, she can give legal advice, uh, and she's not giving legal advice on this call because she's just giving us general education, so don't take what she says as legal advice. But that said, Valerie, if somebody uh, gets a property, um, they inherit through probate, a property worth, say, a million dollars, what kind of tax uh, obligations they have, and then how can you minimize those obligations? So that is a very good question. Now, I see two points, though. Um, generally, if you are going to be giving somebody a million-dollar property through a will, keep in mind that that property will still be probated. So there's going to be the probate fees because a will does not avoid probate. Only a trust does. Now, hold on. Yes, and again, because that is by far the biggest misconception. People say, well, I don't need a, a, a estate plan. I have a will. But a will is like having the DMV form filled out ahead of time. You still got to go to the DMV with it, right? The will just is a ticket to use in probate court. Okay, good. I, I, I always want to emphasize that because I hear that all the time. Oh, I'm good. I have a will. No, you're not good. You're really bad. It's really a problem. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Dan, Rob. And the, the second part of that question is, you know, how to kind of avoid taxes. Well, there are several different types of taxes. There is... Uh, you know, just state tax, um, you guys will be very happy to hear California does not have an estate tax. <laughs> I mean, we're taxed on a lot of things, but <laughs> we do not have an estate tax. Um, and the federal tax, there is a federal estate tax, and that's about uh, 11 million. So it's capped off at 11 million. So if you have under $11 million worth of assets, uh, you do not have an estate tax on that. Right. And if you're married, you combine it, it's about 22 million. Um, so if it's in a million dollar property, um, you know, and it's trusted to you in a trust and you're avoiding probate, um, there won't be any sort of estate tax on that. Got it, good. I saw some of the hand up and now the hands down. I'm not sure who that was. And I see a question in the box from Edie. Um, how often should a will or trust be updated? So a will should be, trust, should be updated like right away, go take it to, uh, your estate planning attorney and get uh, get a uh, estate plan done. How often, though, should those designations and, and distributions uh, be evaluated? This is a really good question. We provide free reviews for all our clients every three years. Mm. Um, now, that does not mean that we don't review them earlier than that. Sometimes a client comes in and tells us, "Hey, I had a major life event happen. You know, I." you know, adopted a child, I, you know, got married, I got divorced, you know, um, any sort of big life event, that's a good time to kind of call your attorney and see if it's time to come in and review the, the, the trust documents. Um, that being said, you know, sometimes clients don't need to get it reviewed at all because nothing's changed and they know that everything is good and they know that they can trust our estate plans. Um, so um, every three every three years, if you just want, you know, 
that peace of mind. Otherwise, come in when a life big event happens. Great. Um, we got a, a question on our LinkedIn Live from Ryan. Um, what's the best way for a real estate agent like myself to build a strong niche in probate real estate with estate planners and or probate attorneys? So the question, you know, it's interesting, but I don't know that you would know this, but in our industry, there's all kinds of companies that say, oh, here's a list of the probate data. Just cold call the attorneys and tell them you're great and ask them for referrals. Um, do you get cold calls like that? Is that an effective way for business? Or what would you recommend to somebody who wanted to build a business in this space? You know, that, that is a good question. And we do get a lot of, you know, cold calls. We do get a lot of people coming in. And, you know, I, I think a way to build an effective relationship is, you know, just being a good resource, you know, being a good resource for them. Um, you know, Bill is a fantastic resource. I know that, you know, if Shadi or I had any questions, we could reach out to Bill and he would give us an honest, thorough answer. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're human too. We don't know everything. We, we, as much as, you know, some lawyers think they know everything, we do not. So, you know, being a good resource for attorneys, you know, being able to um, communicate, um, you know, estate planning needs to your clients is also a big one because yeah. real estate agents are in a very great position. You guys are dealing with clients face to face. And a lot of times these clients have multiple properties. Um, you know, they have families, they have a lot of assets. And so if those assets are not in a trust, they really need to be in a trust. They really need to have estate planning. So you guys are in an opportunity to really serve your clients by, you know, referring them to um, an attorney that they can trust. So I think kind of the mutual referrals, the mutual relationships, that's kind of how you build the best solid relationships. Well, thanks for saying that. I, I agree. And that's why I do this call is to learn myself and a network. I literally had a call today with a, a team member who um, uh, called her past client database. Somebody needed an estate plan. She knew one of her clients had an estate plan, called and found out who the attorney was, put them together. And they end up listing the house with her you know, a year later. So uh, definitely being educated and uh, networking is a big resource that we can bring to, to our clients. Absolutely, Bill. Um, you know, there's there's this saying that everybody needs their A team and their A team is their estate planning a lawyer, their CPA and their financial advisor. Well, I always like to add that that real estate professional is added in there as well, because yeah. let's be real, our real estate, our house is gonna be one of the biggest assets we have in our lifetime. So, you know, having that diamond of a team, yeah. that's solid, that's yeah. solid for anybody. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, Ryan asked also, is it appropriate to pay a referral fee to the attorney? And, and I don't know if it's legal or not. I would say I don't want that relationship. I want to be so valuable. The attorney wants to work with me, appreciates me, values my relationship. So I take him out to lunch or something like that. What, do, you, do you hear of attorneys getting referral fees? or? Oh, that's fees? a really good question. We are held by very, very strict ethical rules. And, you know, um, we actually can lose our license if we're accepting referral fees. Um, from you know real estate agents, and so uh, I have never taken a fee. Um, that being said, we do get a lot of referrals from real estate agents because they know that we provide an added service that a lot of attorneys don't add. So right. um, you know, we just will work for our clients. We don't <laughs> definitely. That's why I sought you guys out. I knew who you were. I saw what you did with through other agents, and frankly, you are the kind of the kind of attorneys that realtors should want to work with to give their client a great relationship 
to then get their other clients to raise their hand and say, I need some help as well. So fantastic. Um, and then also on our live stream on YouTube, uh, Rose says that she heard that some wills are invalidated if they're not notarized, while others need notarization, others need to be witnessed. What's the difference between witnessing and notarization? That was a famous um, movie on that, Body Heat, but it also has to do with the unique laws in Florida. And I know laws change from state to state, but in general, um, and this is another issue about people doing their own wills, that you might think you're better because you have a will, and you might have made it worse by having an invalid will, or you created something somebody can contest with a will, or if you didn't have one, uh, it may not make a difference anyhow. What's your experience on wills and being invalidated and so on? I really, really like this question because I see a couple of issues here. The first one Bill already addressed is that you need to go to a state-specific attorney because the laws change from state to state. Now, our firm is licensed in California and Florida. If somebody comes to us and wants us to do an estate plan in you know, Idaho, we, we would not be able to do that because the rules change from state to state. Now, in California a will needs to be witnessed. Um, and the difference is that a witness can be, you know, your neighbor, it could be anyone really. Um, as long as it's not a, you know, beneficiary who's also a trustee. I mean, there's certain rules about who can be a witness, but generally anyone could really be a witness. Now a notary, they have to uh, be licensed by the state to be a notary. And um, it requires a little bit more to it. Um, but that's, that's really the difference. Um, that being said, our firm handles it all from beginning to end. So you don't really need to know if you need a witness or a notary or, you know, what you need, because from beginning to end, we provide the notary for you. Uh, you know, we provide the witnesses. We make sure that everything is done according to California state law. So you don't even have to worry about that question. We handle it all. And I know I've seen in court, I don't know the law, but I know in practice, there, there's occasions where there's disputes whether or not something is done or right or signatures right or notarized right or witness right, yet the court will rely on an attorney if they prepared it and that attorney's are in front of the court, they give them some additional leeway or some additional respect that the attorney is held to a certain standard of truthfulness more so than the average person and that helps oh, out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's a very good point to say as well. When you go to an attorney, well, at least if you go to, to our firm, um, we fight on your behalf. So, you know, a lot of times, especially with very large estates, um, you know, if there's a trust involved and, you know, they're, they feel slighted, you know, they may, maybe they didn't get the 30 million that their dad had promised, you know, um, mm -hmm. people come out of the woodworks and it gets litigated heavily. Well, we as attorneys, we fight for the trust, you know, the trust is our client. We come and we say, no judge, you know, this is how we did it. This is, you know, what, you know, our client wanted and, um, you know, it's not ambiguous and a hundred percent of the time, I mean, knock on wood, I don't want to say anything. Um, the judge has come back and have always agreed in our favor. So having an attorney that is fighting on behalf of your state plan is very important. A lot of people don't realize this. They think all I need is the documents, but, um, you also need someone to kind of back you up when, you know, things happen that you don't expect. And I've seen, again, I don't know how it feels from a legal point of view, but just from a business point of view, I've been in court and see how judges react differently to attorneys they know that are regular practitioners, that are active members of that particular bar versus attorneys that don't seem like they have their act together. You can, I can, I've seen 
you know, you can, you can see the judge's hesitancy or decisions or rules. It's so important to have somebody um, that, that they respect and appreciate. Okay, we've got a bunch of questions here, so I feel like I'm falling behind. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, Daniel Rossetto, I see you had your head up very patiently for a while. And I know we talked before the call. Uh, you have a question you wanted to, talk, to ask. I, I, I have a few questions, but the one question that I have is, um, <clears throat> what is the process? Let's say that the person has a living trust, and now uh, you have to put it into action. What? How's the process? How, how do you take that living trust and transfer it over to the new uh, person? So um, that process is called trust administration. So once someone passes and they had a trust, that revocable living trust now becomes irrevocable. So it can no longer be changed. You know, nothing can be done. And then that point, there are certain steps that, uh, you know, the trustee has to go through in order to distribute the assets. Um, you know, they'll have to notify the beneficiaries, you know, let them know by a certain time period that this has happened, you know, uh, show a copy of the trust. Uh, they have to make sure that in the meantime that they are, you know, properly taking care of the trust assets and, you know, putting it into a place that's safe and, you know, uh, growing interest. Um, it's, it's a fairly easy process. There are a couple of, you know, forms that need to be filled out, but um, it's it's called the trust administration process. You know, they have to make sure that they are paying the final taxes for the estate. Um, but, you know, it could, it, it could get a little bit more complicated, but it's a lot more easy than the probate process itself. And if you wanted more information on that, I'd be happy to talk to you and kind of give you the rundown of, the trust administration process. Beautiful. Now I have a second question. I do have a close friend, childhood friend. Uh, his father died and they were going through probate with his uh, older brother was handling it. Yeah. Okay, now his brother died a month ago and he has no uh, access to any of the paperwork or any of the information. So where would he go from there? So at this point, it's already in the probate process. We don't even know. He doesn't even know if he started the probate process. Okay. So where's so he? That, where's he live? Uh, the the property is in Victorville, and he lives in Long Beach. Okay. The first thing that he should do is he should take a look at the deed, and he should see what the, who the deed is titled in. So okay. if the deed is titled in an individual, most likely there is no trust in right. place. Now, yeah, if no, we're sure we're sure there's no trust. We're, okay. we're sure of that. So then somebody will need to go to the court and uh, petition the court to be the uh, executor at this point. So okay. it, you know, it could be anyone, you know, a beneficiary, it could be a family member, someone who is, you know, invested in the process, uh, you'll actually have to go and, you know, let the court know that this has happened and that you would like to open a probate case. I gotcha. With a death certificate showing that the person has died. Yes, yes. Both, and uh, both parties or just the or, or just the one whoever it is that wants to be that executor, uh -huh. you know, you're gonna have to file with the court to become the official executor. Gotcha. And then the, the judge will kind of tell you uh the process. It, it's it's gonna be probably about uh, three thousand dollars just to open up the case. Um, but once you know everything is opened, um, I do recommend you know having a lawyer that you trust on that case because that lawyer can kind of walk you through step by step the process the process takes about 
a year to two years. That's that's kind of the process right now. But um, talking to a very good probate attorney, you know, someone like Shadi Schaefer, <laughs> probably the way to go. All right. <laughs> a little plug to Shadi there. <laughs> and Daniel, I can help a little bit if you want to text me offline the, the property address or the names. I can look and see if a probate's currently open. Okay. We can see if there is an attorney involved already. We can see if the attorney is experienced or not, if they're a Shadi Schaefer or they're not. Uh, and then, like like we always said, you can uh, the somebody can apply to be the substitute um, administrator, and then they also can change the attorney if necessary. But it's easier, I think, to take over a probate than to start from scratch, unless there's some problems. So yeah. feel free offline and send that. I'll get you some information on that and let you help with that. Wonderful. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much, Rob. You've had your hand up patiently as well. Um, Rob Dornan, how can we or Bob Dornan, how can we help you? I think you're muted. I just asked to meet you. Okay. There you go. My, my question is a live, real situation. Uh, we helped a family member establish a living trust, uh, a will and living trust, and now they're selling the property. And my thought is that the funds that from the sale need to go into a, an account that is open in within the trust to receipt those. But I need someone to tell me that's right or wrong or what, what should be done. If, uh, there should be a bank account that is opened in the name of the trust and those funds should transfer into those funds. Um, you know, uh, whoever the trustee is, there's gonna be accounting involved. You know, they're gonna have to show like an accounting list and it's very important that they're showing that the funds are coming out of an account that is titled into the trust. So if there never was a, a an account opened in the name of the trust, that can still be done and receipt the fund, the proceeds from the sale, and then you're not jeopardizing, I don't know. Um, there should be a certificate of trust with that uh, um, and you know, all they really need to do is take the certificate of trust go to the bank, they can open up an account under the name of the trust, then they could just transfer that money. Okay, the, the, the trust owner is alive, so they could go to yes, a bank. Absolutely. absolutely. Very good. And, and if you don't do that for this or any other situation, then do you risk something within the guidelines of uh, wills and trusts that-, that if they are alive, you know, they can buy, sell, they can do whatever they want with their property. They don't necessarily have to um, put it into an account that is under the name of the trust. I mean, it's recommended because ultimately you don't want it to go through probate. But, you know, there's no, you know, trust police out there saying, you know, you have to make sure that it's funded this way. Ideally, any of their assets should be titled under the trust, you know, just to make sure that they avoid probate. But if they want to, you know, kind of give me a call and, you know, kind of consult with me as far as how to open up assets under the name of the trust, I'd be happy to do that. Thank you very much. Having done this recently, I can tell you that if you just walk into Bank America, it's a nightmare. But, but attorneys work with certain bank and branch certain branches and certain personnel at those branches to know exactly what to do when it's look at these splits. So I would say, uh, talk to, to Valerie 
uh, or, or your local attorney, and they probably know a banker at a local branch that they know what to do, and this thing goes pretty smooth because doing a BOA was just a complete nightmare uh, for personal. And Bob, I mean, at the very, very minimum, <clears throat> make sure that whatever account they are transferring their funds into, the beneficiaries are updated. You know, make sure that if they have minor children, that the trust uh, is one of the beneficiaries if not the primary beneficiary, the secondary beneficiary. Because if, for you know, God forbid, something were to happen to them tomorrow um, and there's no beneficiaries you know, in that account, then those assets could be probated depending on the value. So at Very a minimum, good. update that the beneficiaries of that account. And, and that, that could be a reference to an account that is actually not held in the trust. Is that right? It can be. If it's held under their name, um, then, you know, make sure that the, the, you know, POD beneficiaries are updated. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, there you go. Um, next up, Hector Aguilar. I see your hand up. Uh, uh, question for Valerie. Hey, good afternoon, Valerie. Uh, thanks for being on here. Um, before I even ask my question, I know we're having some audio issues. I don't know if maybe you're talking away from your mic or not, but just kind of be intentional about talking into the mic because we're having a hard time hearing somebody oh, responses. Okay. okay. Can you hear me uh, now? My my true question is: I have an example. Um, I sold the property for um, an administrator of a trust. There was three heirs to the property, and uh, in response to the gentleman, I believe his name was um, Daniel, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe Bob. Can't can remember the, the previous gentleman who asked. Um, what we did is, oh, Bob. It was Bob Dorman. So what they did is, um, it's also important to know that the escrow company that you're working with in terms of the sale of that property, if that's what they decide to do, that they're also knowledgeable in handling a trust sale, right? And uh, they were guided by the escrow officer and given certain steps to go to a bank and open that account in trust because escrow is not able to, at least from what I understand, and Bill could probably correct me, is that uh, Bob, or pardon me, uh, escrow isn't able to write out checks directly to those three heirs. It has to actually go wired right. to the trust account and then be able to, um, when the trust or the, the transaction is closed, they would be able to go to the bank and then be able to either close out the account or reconcile their portions through that account. So that's the experience I had. Uh, I don't know if that helps Bob or not, or if, if that was the right way to do it. Yeah, but I think I think maybe in your your end having some internet a little bit because I know your audio was dropping off and and I heard it Hector fine. Uh, can you hear me okay now, Valerie? I can hear you, Bill. Yeah, I think there's maybe might be internet issue on your side. Just to summarize his question. AirPods for your MacBook, maybe that you could put your AirPods on for better audio. Hector, the technical support team. <laughs> I'm I'm yeah. a little techie, not not too bad, but techie. I will say, and Hector just while well, she's uh, um, just to summarize the question, he was what he was saying was when the property is titled, let's say in the trust, and I, I've had this happen, they 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 title the property in the trust. Maybe they have their stocks and such in a trust, but now they have the proceeds from the sale of the house, and the escrow is like, well, we're going to send this money. We can't send you know we can't send the check to you personally because they can't. They can't send to the heirs directly. The heirs will say, oh yeah, send it split up three ways, but the escrow can't do that. They're not authorized to. A smart escrow will ask the question early and encourage the um, family to get an account set up in the trust so the money gets wired into the trust right away. 
um, because that's really all. Otherwise, what happens, the escrow says, we'll just hold on to your funds, and they're glad to do it because the bank that finances them is glad to have the money for free. So um, Hector's a good point. I think that's why we want to work with. I think the thing I've learned about probate is when you work with experts in all this stuff, everything gets to be a lot simpler. When you, when you deal with a bunch of hodgepodge people that try to do it on their own, every step is difficult. Val, can you hear us okay? For some reason, I'm having trouble hearing Hector. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, we can hear you. Okay, so his question was, he was talking about the, the, the distinction between escrows, being able to, to wire funds to a trust account, but you need to set up a trust bank account. Oh, she's still doing that. Okay. So I think we, I think we got your question answered, Hector. Are we, we good? Okay, you're muted now. Okay, good. Thank you so much. Um, I saw another hand up. I have a question here from, that's been hanging here for a while, if I can, uh, from Michelle. Does a retirement account that has beneficiaries, um, does that get involved in the, in the calculation for assets for probate, and do those assets have to be probated? IRAs, SEP IRAs, retirement from work and such? So with uh, IRAs and, you know, a retirement account, um, yes, it can be probated. Uh, if you do not have any sort of designated beneficiaries and you have over a $166,000 of funds in there, that those funds would get probated. Um, I always recommend that with 401ks or any sort of retirement accounts that uh, you do not list the trust as the beneficiary, but you list individuals as the beneficiaries. You know, like I said earlier, I'm not a CPA, but there are certain tax benefits that you get when it's an individual receiving retirement accounts versus an entity. Um, but this is something that I can definitely, you know, go over with uh, a lot more with a client during a funding right. meeting, which we always provide. You know, at the end, when we do our signing, we do an extensive funding meeting with them. And this is where, you know, low patient's dangerous because somebody might tell you, oh, an IRA is not, doesn't have to be probated. Well, that's true, as Valerie said, if you designate a beneficiary. But if you don't, who gets the money? Answer, the court will tell you who gets the money. They have a system, and it's like the DMV. You don't want to go that route. So that's why it's part of an important um, uh, planning meeting. Um, Kim, I see your hand up. Can we help you? Are you um, I don't see your video, uh, but you have a question you want to ask? Now your hand went down, so I guess we took care of that. Okay. Um, here's a question. Oh, Now, this is a question out of state. Um, Kim asks, She's a client whose father passed away. The bank is foreclosing on the on the loan. It happens to be the B of VA loan. And probate wasn't uh, done yet. They got the auction date delayed. Um, there's equity in the home, and she's having trouble finding an attorney to take the case um, because they went up front money. Um, so this is a common problem. There's equity, but there's no probate filed. Now, I know this is a state, you don't do you do, do business in Florida, not in North Carolina. But Kim, I can tell you that I actually am um, um, part owner in an inheritance advance company. And, and one way that we help people like this is if the right attorney, some attorneys you know, will work on um, contingency or work on getting proceeds paid. Some will want the expenses advanced. Someone, you know, the, the money is advanced. But, um, but I work with a company that can advance those monies if there's equity in the property, get them five or $10,000 what's needed to file the probate and get the attorney at least started there. 
Um, Val, do you guys work with Inheritance Advance? I guess you and maybe Shadi might, when you get somebody who has equity, but they don't have any cash, their father and mother passed, they didn't really have the finances. Is that something that you work with at all? Um, you know, it, it really is case by case. Um, right. We have before, you know, it's not something that um, we do with everyone. Um, the best way to know is just to schedule a consultation with Shadi and have her look at your own unique circumstances. Yeah, a lot of these questions are individual. But again, Kim, feel reach out, reach out to me. I, I, I have agents on our network in North Carolina. I have an uh, attorney actually I'm interviewing in, in North Carolina. She's on my uh, YouTube channel already. So if I can help with that, I'd be glad to make a connection there. Um, JB asked, what's the fee to set up a, a, a will or have a probate or have an estate planning set up? And I think the answer is you don't know till you have an introductory consult of some sort, correct, Valerie? Um, so we do work on a flat um, fee. So everything is all inclusive. Our single trust, uh, our single trust package starts at $3,850. And then um, our marital package starts at $4,850. But that is all inclusive. Um, and it also does depend on um, what assets you are. You know, obviously someone who has, you know, one primary residence, it's going to be, you know, way different than someone who owns 30 properties. So, um, but that's kind of the starting point. Got it. Um, I think we have another question about if you inherit a million dollar home, will it be capital gains? I think we kind of answered that, um, which is, um, oops, the estate may or may not have capital gains, but the heir doesn't necessarily receive the capital gains. Is that correct? So capital gains taxes is a different type of tax than the one that I had talked about earlier, the estate tax. Um, you know, obviously with capital gains tax, that's the gains on, you know, whatever the profit is on the house. Now, <laughs> I really, really love this question because a lot of people don't know this, but, you know, if you inherit property, you get that step up in basis. So your capital gains taxes will most likely be a whole lot less than if you inherit property during your lifetime. So that's another reason why it's so important to set up a trust you know, for your, you know, children or heirs or beneficiaries, because um, that's one of the biggest tax advantages that you get um, in California is, you know, through an inherit, inherited property. Um, so that's something else that we can talk about. Um, but most importantly, talk to your tax professional first, because they can give you a lot better answer than I can as an attorney. Great. Um, and Kim, to go back to your question, North Carolina, actually watching this Zoom, uh, this live on YouTube is uh, uh, Ashley Palmer, who I interviewed on my YouTube channel. Uh, she's a, a trust administrator in North Carolina. So I could, I'd be more glad to put, put something together for you there and um, help you make that connection. So reach out to me if you want to text or email me or something. We'll get in touch with you. Um, okay. Say, say, uh, Florida. Okay, nice. We have people promoting their business. Very nice. Uh, something to do with a handwritten will that doesn't need to be notarized, but a typed will does. So Frank's asking, is there a legal distinction between handwritten wills and typed wills? Um, there's no distinction. I mean, a handwritten will is a valid will. It's called a holographic will. Um, it does need to be witnessed. Um, now, obviously, there can be a lot of issues with written wills. Um, just because of the nature of a written document, there's a lot of room for error and there's a lot of room for people contesting that will. Um, but it is a valid will. Um, a lot of people don't realize this. Um, now, does it always, you know, 
do what we want it to do. Um, you know, that's just a question on an individual basis. <laughs> so here's I a question. Think, I think a question here from, from Albert, and he asked if we have an office outside of Orange County. Um, they're in Pasadena. Um, I actually do work with a lot of clients from Pasadena. Um, one of my, you know, best friends lives down in Pasadena. So she actually refers a lot of uh, medical professionals down in that area to me. Um, we don't have an office there, but we can do most everything virtually if needed. And we have the technology to do it all virtually. Um, and we do have uh, notaries that we work with down in that area that we can send the documents to. And depending on the situation, I, I've been known to drive all the way down there and meet with my clients as well. Wow. Um, <laughs> you know, so I'm very passionate about my estate plans and, you know, passionate about my clients. And so whenever I can do something for them, I always will. Now, here's a question that I don't want to ask, but I want to know the answer to. I want to hear you say it. Um, you know, I, and I will say that a lot of people, you know, you, you gave your fees, which are very reasonable. I, I, I've interviewed and talked to attorneys whose entry price is 50% higher, twice as high, three times as high. Um, and at the same time, I know there are, you know, um, more self-service online companies that are cheaper. And I tell people better to have a bad estate plan than none, better to have a good one than a bad one, right? So, and, and also if you get a bad one, you can always bring it to the attorney when you have some more money and, and want to upgrade it. But let me ask you that question. What's the difference that you see between, you know, uh, um, LegalZoom or trustandwill.com online, um, you know, under $1,000, but you do it yourself and you fill it online. Um, what difference, and I know I have my answer is why, if you can afford a proper package, why well, you should, but what, how do you answer that? Why are you charging X when I could do it online for a quarter X? Well, um, that's a very good question. And I never, you know, want to be that attorney that, you know, speaks poorly about, you know, another attorney or speaks poorly about, you know, a do it yourself option, because those options exist for a reason. But the truth is you're not going to get everything that you get with an attorney that, you know, is charging higher fees. I mean, you really have to ask yourself, why are these fees so low? Um, that being said, we do get a lot of clients that end up coming in to us that have, you know, done it themselves or have gone to another lawyer just because, um, you know, they didn't get all the documents that they needed. Perhaps they just got a trust and they didn't get, you know, their financial power of attorney or their advanced medical directives or their poor over will. Um, and a lot of times the funding is not included as well, which if you don't have a funded trust, it's as if you don't have a trust at all. Um, we handle all the important stuff. We make sure that your property, we make sure that your businesses are in the name of the trust. You know, we want, our clients to walk out of the office and feel that the cloud has been lifted from their shoulders. There's nothing else that they need to do. And a lot of times, you know, these other companies don't do that. You know, there's something that's missing and that's why they come to us. And then they end up spending more money because they already got their trust done. And then, you know, they try to do it over again. Um, that's what we want to prevent. We want you guys to come to us first and then not have to worry about anything. And, and I, I see that as the biggest value as a practitioner, having been in probate court pre-COVID daily, because um, people say, well, it's not a big deal if it's not in the trust. You can just file a petition. It's called the Hegstead petition. No big deal. Well, you got to hire an attorney and go to court. A, B, today in LA County, that's scheduled six months out from the filing date. 
maybe not in other counties, but in California or in LA County, it's six months, whereas a probate hearing's in 30 days and you could, you could probably sell the house in that time period. And then the Hegstead also gets litigated. Now you have the ex-wife pops up or some Absolutely. brother pops up and you're back to a probate situation as handled a probate court. So, you know, the, the self-service is for somebody who can do all the work themselves, not just part of it. And I do think it's important to, to know it's all been done for most, for most people, if you can afford the fee, if you have a couple million dollars of assets, that extra amount, that extra amount will save you 10 times or more, not to mention aggravation down the road. I, I also want to add something, Bill, and I know I mentioned this earlier, but um, what kind of differentiates us with, you know, the do-it-yourself or, you know, other options out there is that we provide that lifetime guidance. So we grow with our clients, you know, anytime a client texts us, call us, email us, you know, we answer their questions. We don't send them a billable hourly rate after the fact which, you know, let's be honest, a lot of attorneys do, you know, they get you in, they, you know, do a trust for you, you know, you think the price is good, but you can, you know, you call them and you want to consult with them and then they give you a bill for their hourly rate after the fact, you know, we don't want to nickel and dime our clients. We don't want them getting upset with us or mad at us. Like we want them to love us. So at the end of the day, you know, we built in a product that's all inclusive so that we're not nickeling, diming our clients. Uh, Bob has a question again. You're Hi, muted. I'm sorry, I can't uh, find the where I type in the question. That's okay. Anyway, if someone has a living will and a trust, but it's you know a few decades old, um, do you, is it typical you'll start from zero and write a new one, or do you make adjustments to the older one? So there's two ways to you know, adjust an old trust. Uh, this is generally, if, if someone has not changed anything, they don't really need to change anything. They can keep their trust, that's fine. Now, if things have changed, you know, they wanna update their beneficiaries or, you know, their family has grown or, you know, they've, you know, have different properties. There's two ways to make these changes. One is an amendment. That's an additional document that you attach onto your previous, you know, estate plan that amend small things. Um, I don't recommend amendments if there's multiple changes. Um, in that situation, I would recommend having a restatement. Uh, restatement is not, you know, having a brand new trust. It's still the same trust, but, you know, it's as if you're having a brand new trust because the name is the same, but, you know, the documents are all updated. Everything's all new. Um, the only difference is it will state that any previous trust has now been revoked and this restatement now is the reigning supreme document <laughs> so it's called hey. a restatement and towards that do the do the underlying rules and laws change so that the format of your trust documents that you provide to customers change regularly yearly every three years five years has there been hmm. significant changes like in real estate we have new state laws passed in california every minute and so Everything changes all the time. What's it like in, in your practice and how does that that's affect a, states that are done by the people? That's a really good question. Um, so there are changes, you know, California, you know, changes probate laws and there are changes. Um, I wouldn't say that any of them are so significant that you would have to run out and, you know, get a brand new trust. Now, our documents are constantly updating. So if you have a trust with us now, you'll know that it's the most, you know, recent updates, most recent laws, you know, we're writing things, you know, um, 
to make sure that we're including all any new update. Um, but for the most part, you know, if you've had a trust that's, you know, 20 years old and you went to a good attorney that, you know, made sure that things were properly done, you know, it, it shouldn't, you shouldn't have to worry too much about the, the changes of laws. Now, if, you know, certain things are irrelevant, you know, then definitely come in and, and talk to an attorney. And then I guess related to that question, if somebody has done one already, whether it be an attorney or a do-it-yourself package, uh, do, you, do you get customers who bring those into you and say, well, here's what I've done. Help me. What do I do at this point? Oh, Is that a starting? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, every day. Um, you know, a lot of times people do it to a certain point and then they realize, um, hey, I don't really know if this is valid, then what we'll do is we'll we'll come in and we'll review it with them and see if it's it's good enough. I will promise you guys one thing. I will never, ever do anything that I don't need to do. I will never, ever suggest something to my client that they don't need just for my own benefit. Um, if I review a trust and I say, hey, you know, your your attorney did a good job. I, I really don't think you, you need me. You know, I give it back and I send them off their way. Um, now, if that attorney is no longer there and no longer answering their phone calls, then that's a whole different story. I would like to, you know, take over so that I can continue to give them that guidance through their lifetime. But um, like I said, I'll never do something that I don't need to do. Well, great. Look, you guys have a strong reputation. And that's why I reached out to you initially a couple of years ago to your firm and, and uh, have referred people to Shadi. And I know you guys do a fantastic job. Um, look, we're coming up on the end here. Uh, we, we, I appreciate all the questions. I got to a bunch of them. I know we had a little technical glitches during uh, the middle. Um, I will say that in the chat box is her contact info, Valerie Passion. Uh, she's with the Asset Protection and Elder Law Center in Orange County in, in uh, Irvine, I think. Yeah, in Irvine. And uh, phone number 714-966-2646. They do free con consultations there. Or you can go to their website, which is assetprotectioncenter.com. And if you click on there, there's a nice picture of her. And, and uh, again, all dressed up. Uh, so nice, all pre-COVID kind of photos, which is great. Um, and and uh, But the nice thing about them is they're a full-service firm. Valley does primarily the estate planning side, which is the before, avoid. And then if you don't do that, you have to go see Shadi. And that's the after I forgot to do my estate plan. And now I have a litigation problem. And she can help with that as well. And like I said, she's uh, interviewed on our YouTube channel as well. So on behalf of everybody here on the call, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your insight you and your giving of your heart a, to us. You guys have a fabulous group here and I apologize for the technical difficulties. You know, if there was no technical difficulties, then it wouldn't be me because I guess it just follows me wherever I go. I apologize for that. <laughs> part of part of the COVID life. The, you know, we talk to our grandkids, we talk about COVID life and how they, how they happen. Hey guys, thanks so much for being on the call today. I know a lot of you guys had questions. I tried to get to as many as we could. Sorry about the technical issues, but we do this every Thursday, 4 p.m. Uh, we live stream it on YouTube and Facebook and LinkedIn. We also record it on my YouTube channel and other social media. Bill Gross EXP is where we, we, on my social media, uh, at Bill Gross EXP. This is probateweekly.com. Register, uh, appreciate your help. I'm part of a national team of real estate agents across the country focused on probate and trust and litigation in real estate. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll see you next week. Make it your best week ever. Hey, it's Bill Gross. I hope you like this video. If you want to join us live every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern, register at probateweekly.com, www.probateweekly.com. And if you like this content, hit the like button and subscribe and hit notifications, and you get notified as soon as we upload every time. Thanks.